Season 2 of Hard to Believe is a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can find this and other great shows at cageclub.me. The complete Season 1 archive is also available at hardtobelieve.me. This show is now available on YouTube. Just search Hard to Believe Podcast. You can email me at john at cageclub.me. We're on Facebook at Hard to Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. If you were born before or around, say, 1985, the name Gary Kasparov probably rings a bell. And that's likely because you remember him losing a chess match in 1997 to an IBM computer named Deep Blue. Kasparov is one of the greatest all-time chess masters, having spent two decades as the number one ranked player in the world. But he's also one of the most important figures in Russian politics, to which he's devoted every bit as much time and energy as he has to chess. The line between the two is, in fact, remarkably thin anyway. Kasparov's life has taken him from identifying as a communist, a liberal democrat, and ultimately a political centrist, whose main political objective is anti-fascism. Criticizing Russia's de facto authoritarian dictator, Kasparov has said, quote, Fascism has come to Russia. Project Putin, just like the old Project Hitler, is but the fruit of a conspiracy by the ruling elite. Fascist rule was never the result of the free will of the people. And this is something for which Kasparov, like so many Russian opposition politicians, at least the dwindling number who have managed to survive Putin's murder squads, has developed an intrinsic understanding. That disinformation is the strongest, most essential tool in the fascist toolbox. When Russian disinformation became probably the story of American politics five years ago, like many of us, I never really connected the dots that would provide the full picture. But when I, sometimes accidentally, began pulling some of the threads, I started to see the complexity of this particular tapestry's weaving. And here's the reality. The last hundred years of Russian history, and indeed the last 100 years of world history, cannot be separated out from Russian disinformation campaigns. In this recurring series, I'll be inviting some of my friends, starting with Mike Manzi and Jess Collins, along with a few other guests, to explore the history of Russian disinformation, starting with what I identify as the founding document of conspiracy theories, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. As Kasparov said in 2016, the point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda, it's to exhaust your critical thinking, to annihilate truth. I'm John Brooks, and this is Disinformation, a hard-to-believe special series. Part 1, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Mike and Jess, welcome back. Uh, last time we spoke was on the QAnon episode, and that turned out to be completely irrelevant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a boring couple of months it's been. Um, but one of the things that I brought up when we were having that conversation was um, the Russian element of the conspiracy theories that sort of feed into the, the Q narrative. And so... I decided that uh, for this season, we're going to do a few episodes where we explore um, that history. And, and we're going to start today um, with something that I talked about in the episode just briefly, um, which is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So beyond what I told you a few months ago, 
let me ask both of you uh, what, if anything, you know about this um, mysterious document. Nothing other than what you've told me. Yeah, same. Um, I'm here for more of a learning experience this time, I guess. Awesome. Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do any prior research. I did some for the QAnon episode, which proved kind of fruitless because that rabbit hole is, <laughs> is just, you know, infinitely deep. But yeah, so I, I don't know any. Okay, great. So luckily, we don't have to go back to the um, like ancient world uh, to to start this story. Um, if if you if you would like to go back and listen to our Q and on episode, um, that's available, and uh, it digs a lot more into the uh, issue of like the blood libel um, and what was going on in medieval Europe and um, and the relationship between Europeans and uh, European Christians and Jews and so forth. Um, but we're going to start this story in the 1770s. So between 1770 and 1790, we have what was called the Partitions of Poland. And, that, and that's when Prussia and Austria and Russia divided up the Polish territory. Um, and, and each of them sort of took control of, of one region. Um, if you know anything about Poland, I mean, it's a lot of uh, sort of wars and, and conflicts happen because Poland is strategically useful um uh, and and it's sort of the good kind of border between the eastern and western world so to speak but you know at this point you have these three major sort of imperial powers um and the three of them basically just carve up poland um over the course of of 20 years so poland was also at this point uh a, a big home to um ashkenazi jews and so this, the, the story of the, the migration of, of the Jews, um, you know, from the Middle East during the diaspora and into Europe um, is, a, is a very, very messy story. But the, but the place where the Jews really thrived was in Poland, where, where they were um, largely welcomed and well integrated into the society. Um, and so for a long time, Poland had the, the biggest Jewish population um, in Europe. Of course, that changed um, after the Holocaust, uh, and, and it went from millions of Jews in Poland to now there's a, a few thousand, right? So, but at this point, you have a lot of Jews living in Poland and not a bunch living in Russia. And so when, when Russia gets its portion of Poland, it, it creates uh, sort of a, um, a, a, a Jewish sort of um, ghetto, like a huge region that like the Jews just are sort of squashed into. It's called the Pale of Settlement, and it's on the, uh, the, the Western region. Um, of the Russian Empire. So in the Pale of Settlement, the Jews are sort of relinquished to a, a second-class citizenship. And so they, they sort of have all of the burdens of the Russian Empire with like none of the privileges, right? Um, they're just sort of like, you know, stay here, don't infect us with your Jewishness and our, you know, pristine Russian, uh, you know, Christian society um, and, and, and will be good. So, so Russia didn't really want to have Jews, right? It was just sort of the price of imperialism was uh, they needed to sort of take take these Jews on. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't a good start, right, for the relationship between um, Russia <laughs> and, and, and this Jewish population. And there's this real lasting and understandable antipathy uh, between the Jews and Tsarist Russia, um, you know, by the end of the 18th century and, and carrying on um, thereafter. So in order for this arrangement to work, um, the, the, the Jews of the Pale of Settlement are, are governed by um, a, a body called the Kahal. It's Q-A-H-A-L. Um, and Kahals were a way of basically providing semi-autonomy for the Jewish populations in, in Russia, while also just sort of like not bother bothering the Russian 
government with with their needs. Um, this is actually a pretty common sort of arrangement for 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 Judaism. If you look at the history of Judaism, you know they're constantly being conquered or or expelled or whatever it is, uh, and living sort of as second class citizens within other. Um, within other empires don't, don't necessarily sort of bring them into the fold. Um, and so what they often do is kind of set up this sort of, it's sort of proxy government, right? Where like, uh, if you look at like the Persians, when they, when they freed uh, the Jews from Babylon in the, in the sixth century BC, and then, you know, let the Jews return back to Jerusalem. And they were just like, yeah, just pay our taxes. And like, you can have your own laws, but like, just don't, you know, don't, don't make a make a mess, right? That was basically the deal. And, you know, a similar kind of thing happened in, in ancient Rome when you had, um, you know, the, the the Sadducees. You had these sort of elite Jewish high temple priests who like cut deals with Roman authorities in order to sort of keep the Jewish population in line and have them respect Roman taxes and whatever. So, like, this is very very common for 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 Jewish populations, but it also tends to not end well. Right? Like those are the two things that um, that, that we can say uh, about about that arrangement. So the Kahal was was sort of a um, a, a theocracy. Um, Judaism is is a is a religion of law, right? There's Jewish laws that are separate from civil laws, um, and and the Kahal is this like Jewish sort of Orthodox state um, within the broader Russian construct. So throughout the 19th century. Um, this is essentially how how Jews live uh, in Russia. Um, they are subject to not great treatment uh, by the czarist regimes, and of course, because they have their own sort of shadow government, um, they are going to be suspect, right? Like whenever you've got a group that sort of runs by different rules, they're going to become the the, the subject of, of whispering um, and, and suspicion. So that brings us to where this starts to get ugly. And that happens in a guy named uh, Yakov Alexandrovich Brofman, who, who uh, history knows better as Jacob Brofman. Jacob Brofman was born in the middle of the 19th century um, in the Pale of Settlement into pretty extreme poverty, into a Jewish family. Uh, his parents died when he was very young. He never really learned to, to read or write in Hebrew. Um, so he never really had like, he had a really shit life. Uh, he was oppressed by, you know, and sort of mistreated by everybody. He never really got in, in sort of any sort of connection to his, his Jewish roots. Um, uh, and so he, he sees the Kahal really as this sort of, corrupt and uh, sort of illegitimate governance, right? Like, he doesn't understand why he has to have two governments. He doesn't understand why, right? Like, he has to live under this arrangement that's clearly oppressive. Um, And so eventually he just sort of like fucks off to to Minsk. He converts to Christianity, becomes a member of the Russian Orthodox Church. um, And he ends up being sort of like a a Russian zealot uh, and a a Christian zealot. And he tries to convert a whole bunch of Jews into uh, Russian Orthodox Christianity um, uh, without a lot of success. But he he becomes a kind of um, sort of in the the good graces of of the Romanov dynasty. He he becomes somewhat famous. and, and And he starts like writing these polemics about um, what to do with what he called useful Jews, right? So in, in, in Tsarist Russia, you had, um, especially under the late Romanovs, you had, you had useful Jews and useless Jews. And useful, and it's horrible to say that, but like that's how they referred to it. Um, so useful Jews were ones who you could like assimilate into Russian life, um, and useless Jews were ones who refused to be part of the sort of Christian 
Russian European um, dynastic glory um, or whatever. So Brofman is is kind of like a, a guy who has turned on his people um, and and you know plays that sort of there's that kind of like Stockholm syndrome thing going on. So the reason that any of that matters um, is is that he basically goes on this sort of crusade to destroy uh, the Cajal system, which he sees as corrupt um, and authoritarian. Um, but the problem is uh, that Tsar Nicholas I had abolished the Cajals in 1840 when Brofman was 15. So Nicholas I, like, as an anti-Semitic rule, is like, no, no more Cajals. Like, he's taking away Jewish autonomy. And, and Brofman's like, well, if I, if, if I can't bring down the Cajals, then, like, what, what can I do? So... Here's what he does, and, <laughs> and this is where it gets awfully familiar, right? So Brofman really wants to bring down a system that no longer exists. Um, and so, so take a wild guess as to what he does in light of the fact that this system and this structure no longer exists. He claims it does. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good guess. Uh, yeah, so he, he claims uh, that the call system, uh, once it was disbanded by, by the czar, went on as a deep state. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, so, so he says, like, no, 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 the Cajals aren't gone. They are, they have, they have sort of rebranded and gone underground uh, and they are hell-bent on taking down uh, the Russian Empire um, and assuming uh, global authority. So he writes these two books. One is uh, in 1968, sorry, 1868, uh, The Local and Universal Jewish Brotherhoods, which sounds like a hmm. real page turner, and 1869's The Book of the Cahal. Uh, I'll wait for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that second one, actually, like, it's really interesting because it has... Explosions? No. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you think of, like, conspiracy literature or, or, or movies, like, it has that sound. Like, it, you know, the, 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 one of the big QAnon um, internet movies is The Fall of the Cabal, right? Like, it, it almost is like, like it evokes uh, uh, Brofman's uh, title there, right? It's, it, yeah. it's almost like a classic kind of conspiracy theory um, text. So he, he argues that they, they have not, disappeared um what they have done is formed a international global conspiracy working under the uh, alliance israelite universelle which was a, a french jewish empowerment organization france will, will play a pretty big role in this story actually but so, so he says basically like they all moved to france you know all these all these sort of anti-government leftist groups move to France. That's what they're doing. That's where they are. They haven't disbanded. Um, you must go after them, right? Um, and so he writes these two tracts, and, and, and that is basically his contribution to history. And so by the end of the 19th century, the idea that there is a massive secret Jewish globalist conspiracy was already in place. And it was all basically because of the personal vendetta uh, that Jacob Rothman had uh, against his, his shitty childhood. And, and so this is like when we hear the word globalist, Right. Um, you probably like we hear that a lot now, like globalist has become the new um, anti-Semitic dog whistle term. And, and, and it's it's always kind of been that. Right. So if you ever listen to like Alex Jones, he's going on about globalists all the time. Uh, he doesn't want to say, right, the Jewish ruling elites like he uses this sort of dog whistle term. 
and you, yeah, you know, like Stephen Miller uses globalist all the time as well, right? So like the alt right has 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 used that because it is so it, it sounds inoffensive and it doesn't sound sort of religiously oriented. But but the idea of globalism um, as as being a uh, secret Jewish plot to um, undo you know the glorious empires of Europe is is uh, has been around for a long time. So now we we get to the end of the nineteenth and the beginning of the twentieth century, um, and and this is where things start to start to get ugly. But before we go forward, do you guys have any questions? Uh, I, I'm just surprised that it's this uh, this is sort of this fresh in history like i thought this dated back at least like you know a hundred years earlier i mean i guess it did sort of start right the the sparks were flamed like you said in like the 17 late 1700s right and here we are in the late 1800s and it's off and running um you know this sort of seems to be like a a end point of you know of where all that started from or at least like you know on to the next chapter but yeah, you know, this this makes a lot of sense. Like a lot of things fall into place. Like, you know, growing up throughout the 80s and stuff, just hearing, you know, people jokingly say like, oh, like the Jews run everything or the Jews run the media and this and that and all that other stuff. I'm like, sure, it's at the point in America where it's like, haha, kind of like a, a passing joke or whatever. But no, like there's dark, serious uh, roots and even worse implications that we're seeing now to this day and everything. So it's, you know, it's enlightening so far. Yeah, and I think part of the reason why the idea of a global conspiracy didn't really catch on until until the end of the 19th century is the idea of like a global anything, right, hadn't really caught on until then, right? Like it wasn't really until World War One that the idea yeah. of, you know, a, a worldwide anything, right, would, would ever really exist. Um, yeah, was there a connection for a voice to even reach around the world? You know, you had to be someone extremely high esteem or have done great deeds, I would feel, to have your name known around the world, even, you know, in the 1800s and stuff. And plus, print, I suppose, was coming much more into play and being more common and translation mm-hmm. and, and everything and technology, right? So technology is going to fuel this fire probably for a lot of the way. All right. So 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 let's move on to uh, what happens in the 19th century. So in 1881, um, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated by members of uh, the People's Will, which is a left-wing radical revolutionary group. Um, Alexander II had actually uh, implemented a number of liberal reforms, uh, moving Russia in sort of the opposite direction of his of his father, uh, Nicholas. So Nicholas was was really sort of um, you know really cracked down on on the Jews and on any sort of modernist uh, sort of pro revolutionary liberal lowercase l ideals and and uh, Alexander sort of left left the window open a little bit uh, for more kind of reform-oriented people, uh, which got him assassinated by an extreme left-wing group. So after he was killed, uh, his son, Alexander III, uh, took over, and he basically just put back in place all of Nicholas's um, initial sort of crackdowns, right, sort of hardline policies. And and this this forced um, a bunch of the leftist groups to flee Russia um, and to go into um, into Europe. So it's important to remember that all this is happening during the the formative years of of one Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, uh, who we know better today as Vladimir Lenin. Alexander III's retreat to autocracy didn't exactly snub out left wing ideology, as he 
sure you probably know, but if you know anything about Russia in the 20th century, it didn't go away. <laughs> but it did get pushed out, right? So it got pushed sort of into, into Europe. And, and the place where it was probably strongest was Paris. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that in, in a moment. All right, so, so not for lack of trying, uh, one of Alexander III's strategies was to have Russian agents infiltrate leftist groups um, throughout the world, uh, the sorts of leftist groups that would eventually radicalize Lenin. Uh, and to do this, he employed a spy master named Peter Ivanovich Rakovsky, uh, who headed what's called the uh, Okhrana, which is sort of the, one of the precursors to the, the KGB. Rakovsky was sent to Paris, where a bunch of Russian uh, leftist revolutionaries, including members of the People's Will, uh, had fled thanks to it being far more hospitable to liberal thought. But by all accounts, Rakovsky was really good at his job, and he forged relationships with incredibly influential people throughout Europe. Um, his story is fascinating on its own, uh, but what matters for our purposes is his Parisian asset, a guy named Matthew Golovinsky. Um, any of you guys ever heard of, of Matthew Golovinsky? Nope. Never heard of him? No. Uh, neither had I until I started researching this. Turns out he's really, really important to the story. Um, so Golovinsky is is a fascinating person um, whose story is very similar to like a lot of other radicals of the time. One of the things we we tend to get wrong or like not really understand about um, anti-imperial radicals is their ability to swing from left to right was was incredibly easy so you know, look at someone like uh like Mussolini right who who started out as an extreme leftist and and then became the father of fascism um and 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 Golovinsky is like one of these people uh he 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 sort of has a pedigree of both sides of the um political extreme and and he sort of played both sides as well He was raised in an aristocratic family. His father was a a progressive intellectual who, along with uh, his friend Dostoevsky, was a member of the uh, Petrovsky Circle, which was an anti-Tsarist sort of book club. Um, (laughs) I used to have book club on Third Time's a Charm, yeah. Doesn't sound like my kind of book club. What's your kind of book club? (laughs) Uh, One where you don't really, you know, talk about the book, you kind of just drink a lot <laughs> i read passages from movie novelizations <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, this is the kind of book club that uh most of the revolutions of the 20th century were like fomented in right so so you have all these you have all these like literary groups like poetry groups um uh you know the the Petr- circle is, is one of them and there's it's like this weird thing where you like go and read and write poetry and then also like plot <laughs> to overthrow uh, whatever or or you know create a better civilization um, somehow. Dead poet society, eat your hearts out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so his father uh, Golovinsky's father died when when Matthew was was ten, and so he ended up primarily raised by um, a governess who was French, uh, and he would eventually move to Paris and pursue a career as a journalist. Unlike his father, um, Matthew had conservative sort of pro-Tsarist leanings, largely due to his personal uh, anti-Semitism, because at this point, socialism and Judaism were considered two sides of the same coin by most right-wing ideologues. So what's going on with, and th- like the reason why Golovinsky is so interesting sort of in the middle of this story is what's going on here is like the, um, the, the Bolsheviks and the Jews and the Christians and the Tsarists, right, are, are really solidifying their sort of shared identity. So while uh, Golovinsky's father had been a, a sort of 
you know, largely anti-Tsarist progressive. Um, you know, he was still an anti-Semite, right? Like, but but now to be an anti-Semite was also be to uh, to, to be um, anti-Bolshevik. Um, do you guys know why? Like, do you have you ever understood or caught wind of the the sort of overlap of like communism and Judaism within the sort of far right imagination. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I just, I just chalked it up to, you know, lack of education, possibly just lumping them together because of, out of fear of both ideologies, just, they must originate from the same place, possibly. I'm, I, but again, that's a guess. Yeah. So one of the things that um, emerges as a narrative is is what's called Judeo-Bolshevism, which is the idea um, that sort of like Bolshevism is a backdoor to cultural Judaism and vice versa. Uh, and it's part of what actually the protocols is part of, which is a um, what's called a, a, a canard. Right, uh, an anti-Semitic canard. So it's like a, it's like a, it's like a fantasy idea um, that is put in place in order to discredit um, other groups. So as as sort of a bunch of racist assholes, um, anti-Bolsheviks being anti-Semites, just sort of lumped Bolsheviks and Jews together. Now. There's a lot of reasons why Bolshevism appealed to Jewish people, largely because they've been so like shat on by the czarists for 200 years uh, or like 150 years or whatever it was that, you know, they were like, well, anything's better than the czarists. So they tended to side right with the with the communist revolutionaries. Um, but the other side of it that sort of like makes it weird is that, you know, the Bolsheviks were largely like anti-religious. So it's not as though people like Stalin were less anti-Semitic than any other than any other person in the Russian Empire. But, you know, a lot of Jews uh, aligned themselves with the Bolsheviks because they they just they were both sort of the um, the go to whipping posts um, of, of Russian society. And was, is that largely due to sort of religious um stuff like the, the idea that like you're like because you're saying like the bolsheviks are, are mainly non-religious and then you have the jews who believe what they believe but then so like they're not christian religion believers or they don't believe in that so is that where a lot of the targeting comes from as well it, it possibly or yeah uh, so yeah that's a, that's a great point yeah so it's like yeah you know, the jews are always sort of the um given the um the the burden of like the the people who are trying to overthrow Christianity right the, like the the Christ killer slander and all that sort of thing and yeah you see that a lot today like you look at you know the the way that the right in America talks about like AOC is like you know on the verge of implementing a communist rule in America uh, and it's this you know, you, you sort of become like culturally hardened, right? So you say, you know, Russia is czarist and it is Christian and, and anything that is other um, is just the same thing. And, and I, I, you know, again, I don't think you have to look very hard in America to, to, to see that, that playing out um, as well. Okay, so moving on. So we got Golovinsky and we have uh, Rakovsky. So, so we have this, this spy master who's stationed in Paris and he is using his, his assets to infiltrate all of these leftist groups. Um, so what happens next is something that historians by and large seem to basically concur 
with, which is that in the middle of the 1890s, uh, early in the, the reign of Nicholas II, uh, and Nicholas II will be a big part of our next episode, so we'll we'll come back to him. Um, Jess knows what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Rakowski commissions uh, Golovinsky to put together a propaganda piece that would suggest the modernist reforms that Nicholas had become sympathetic to were all a backdoor Jewish-led effort to overthrow the Tsar and establish a commun- communist state. And with that, Golovinsky went on to compose the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So right now, most... Um, historians accept the idea that Golovinsky, and I'll, I'll give you the evidence for this in a little bit, but the idea that Golovinsky um, was was the, the forger who created the protocols um, themselves. And early on, what it seems to be is basically um, sort of a just a kind of like a back pocket weapon, right? He, they're, they're using a lot of strategies to discredit and undermine um, all of these left-wing groups. Um, but, but they want to create a sort of an idea virus that will just circulate in enough areas that it will uh, create sort of a widespread doubt um, about these leftist groups and and present the idea that what they are all trying to do is implement this uh, Jewish New World Order. Again, you see it with our politics today, right? Like every time someone's like, raise the minimum wage, like their communism is the next step. It's like, no, <laughs> like definitely it isn't. But um you know, if you believe that every progressive law is just a slippery slip to new world order, right? There's a there's reasons why you believe that, and it has to do with your media consumption and the, and the propaganda that you've been that you've been fed. So they're using this idea that's basically, I mean, it's 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 a very old notion, right? Um, but the profundity of its success is is why the story of it matters so much. So about 40% of the protocols are directly or indirectly plagiarized uh, from an 1864 work uh, by a French writer named Maurice Jolie called, and this is a great title, The Dialogue in Hell Between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. <laughs> wow. Now there, that is a movie. <laughs> I would watch that like some, uh, yeah, that would be crazy. Just the two of them. The whole Jess, movie. have you read that one? You know, uh, I'm sitting here kind of reading a, a couple of snippets out of it, and um, it's it uh, doesn't seem like something I would really be into. It's super fucking boring. It really is like it is it is literally a fake dialogue that takes place in hell um, between Machiavelli and and the French. Uh, reform philosopher uh, Montesquieu. Um, oh, it, that's a deleted scene from a Matrix sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the idea behind it uh, is that is that Jolie wrote it as a uh, a screed against Napoleon the Third, and you know it's one of these like thinly veiled attacks, right? So anybody reading it knows exactly why he's pitted these two thinkers against each other, and what what the intention of 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 um, of the dialogue is, but what you have is is Machiavelli arguing in favor of sort of autocratic uh, despotism, and Montesquieu uh, arguing in favor of progressive liberalism. And you know what the dialogues or the, the protocols present themselves as are literally like uh, minutes of a meeting of a conversation, and so using this sort of dialogue based. Um, uh, political treatise as your 
uh, as your model makes sense. And yeah, this is something like, I don't know how much you guys have read philosophy, but like, this is a lot of philosophy is written this way, like going back to, to you know, the Socratic method, and Plato wrote, right, of, of, you know, Socrates having a conversation with like Mino or whatever. And, you know, the student walks up to Socrates, he's like, hey, Socrates, why does this happen? And he's like, well, let's take a look, right? Um, <laughs> and, and literally, that's, that's how Socrates yeah. That's how that's how Plato's Just written. A series of interruptions. Yeah. <laughs> so it's you know it's very sort of a uh, it's it's a well worn um, philosophical approach and <laughs> uh, and, and uh, Golovinsky is basically like oh this this is, this would be a great uh, template um, to, to use to make my fake conversation of secret Jews plotting to um, undermine uh, global civilization. Um, now the dialogue uh, itself uh, that's Jolie's work was itself heavily plagiarized. <laughs> from another early work of political satire, which was also plagiarized by another influential work of anti-Semitism in, the, uh, in, in, in a 1688, uh, sorry, 1868 uh, book uh, by a German writer uh, named Ermann Gotsch, I think I pronounced him that right, called, called Bariets, uh, which features a chapter called, quote, ready for this, The Jewish Cemetery in Prague and the Council of Representatives of the Twelve Tribes of Israel. Oof. Yeah, so, solid book, heavy on plot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the Jewish cemetery in Prague was translated into Russian a few years later um, and was circulated as a nonfiction artifact. The basic framework of the protocols was already well established in far-right Russian and Euro- European anti-Semitic circles. And all that Rakovsky and Golovinsky needed to do was assemble a semi-coherent forgery uh, from the disparate parts. So this like Jewish cemetery in Prague thing, right, is is a clearly, I mean, it's like comically absurd. In it, you have this like meeting in this Jewish cemetery of these shadowy Jewish figures who all represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, it doesn't seem that that um, that Goethe knew that the 12 tribes of Israel no longer exist, right? And that like, they disappear and that's like in the bible and so so it seems like it's a it's sort of a bad sort of fanfic about about um judaism but but it was when it was translated it, people were like no this is real this is a real thing like this really happened right uh and and that sort of idea that they again that there was this there was these um these sort of nonfiction accounts of of Jews plotting the downfall of civilization um, was already sort of in the um, in the water, um, so to speak. So, how do we know that uh, the protocols were were forged by Golovinsky? The evidence is as follows. So, aside from the obvious kind of circumstantial evidence. A couple things stand out. One, um, the style mimics that of Golovinsky's other work, which is always a tell. But two, um, and and more, there's two more sort of pretty curious connections. Uh, one is that Maurice Jolie's son—that's the guy, I remember, who wrote the the dialogue in Hell. Uh, um, a guy named Charles Jolie was a was a friend and colleague of Golovinsky uh, at the French newspaper Le Figaro. Another source from which the protocols appear to be liberally plagiarized is the work of Golovinsky's father's good friend, Fyodor Dostoevsky. So, if you look at Golovinsky's work and you look at who he was in contact with and like where the protocols are clearly pr- plagiarized from, it all points back to him. Okay, so so this this is now um, in the early 20th century. Uh, I, I believe the first edition of the protocols appear in 1903, um, and and that's around the time that Golovinsky and and uh, Rakowski are are working in in France. 
but they went from being this sort of circulated pamphlet into 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 something um, much bigger and and here's how that happened um, all right so let's pause for a second let's talk russian history the year is 1900 something this is when things start to get bad for political and social um, stability right in russia so you have the expulsion of leftist groups you have them going back to europe you have them infiltrated um, a lot of them sort of you know realize they need to go back to Russia. You've had over the course of this period of time, um, Lenin, who is gallivanting around Europe, learning about Karl Marx, um, all that sort of thing. So it's a very, very unstable time in Russia. And and the the Romanov dynasty is like hanging on by a thread. And and you know, there was there was a, a Russian revolution before the Russian Revolution that we don't talk about very much because the second one was more important. Um, but in the early 1900s, there was another Russian Revolution, um, which which led to some sort of modernization. But what you also have then is uh, within Russia itself a far more of a sort of um, people going to their corners, and 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 you see the support, the the sort of pro czarist wing become ever more sort of violent and extremist in their own right um, uh, to, to protect uh, the czar. Um, and, and one such group was called the Black Hundreds, um, which is a pretty, pretty badass name. So the Black Hundreds somehow get a copy of the protocols and, and they uh, publish them in their own sort of party's newspaper um, called Zanamya, which is the official like pro-czarist newspaper. So the Black Hundreds were like not screwing around. They they were in favor of like absolutely crushing and killing any challenge to the Tsar, um, any liberalizing forces, any modernizing forces. Think of like, you know, MAGA extremists, right? And it's like that, but times a lot. Um, so so when we say like extreme conservatism or extreme right wing, uh, the Black Hundreds were were the sort of uh, poster boys for, for that kind of movement. Now, it's not uncommon uh, for... A, a political movement like that to have its own newspaper that was that was something again if you look at the uh the history of revolutions in the 20th century they all have their own newspapers right and like newspapers actually themselves like it's funny we talk about newspapers becoming all political now right like oh the new york times is too liberal and it's like well yeah but newspapers sort of began as a phenomenon specifically as like propaganda engines for uh, for for political and revolutionary groups, you know, again, like Mussolini was was a, a liberal journalist before he became uh, the father of fascism. Like Stalin ran a newspaper. Like they, they all they all worked as journalists. Uh, they they all worked in the newspaper, and they understood that like that was the way of um, of recruiting people. Right. That was the, that was the best way of sort of. You know, it's like Fox News, right? Like, it's how you control <laughs> the, the nation's grandpas is like, give them Tucker Carlson and, you know, they'll believe anything he says, right? Well, it makes me think a little of like good old Ben Franklin, too, though. Yeah, that, yeah, you know. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's not at all uncommon. But what's interesting is like when you, when you publish it... Um, you know, if you think of like Fox News or you think of like OAN or something like that, and and oh, um, so here's a good example. This this past weekend, um, as we're recording this, um, you guys know about uh, Absolute Proof? No, nope. Uh, this is the two-hour My Pillow Guy 
just like oh, yes! <laughs> oh, okay. yes! sorry i watched the new tim heidecker stand-up instead oh <laughs> loser so yeah so my pillow guy uh did a two-hour documentary they're like nobody saw it except people who like watch newsmax no way in and uh infowars right so the reason that this is kind of weird that this is what the um the the black hundred do with the protocols is they're just circulating it to a audience that already agrees right they're already anti-semitic they already believe there's like this jewish cabal that's intent on um overthrowing overthrowing the czar and so a lot of historians look at that and say like well you know it seems like most of them just kind of thought it was a joke like or not really a joke but they didn't necessarily believe it was like word for word true like they could kind of see that it was pretty obviously a forgery but they circulated among themselves anyway because it made them feel good right um and so you know you'll you'll see sometimes um, historians say that the protocols were really just an in joke that kind of got out of control i don't actually I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, it's just locker room talk. Is that what they're saying? I, I, yeah, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of what they're saying. Um, but again, it's kind of like saying like like you can point to Q as well, right? It began as something that like existed within this sort of you know deep subdivision of the world of four chan and eight chan and whatever. Um, but it didn't stay that way, right? So, like, whatever the intent was, and, and we still don't really quite know what the intent was with Q. There's still a lot of debate about that. But um, whatever the intention was, whether it was a, a prank or it was a um, like a, a LARP or like a puzzle or whatever, uh, or a, a you know a, a real sort of um, psyop uh, campaign. Um, we know what happens once it leaves that territory. And, and that's the problem with what's happening here. So, so the, uh, the Black Hundreds are publishing it sort of knowing that what they're publishing is bullshit. But it sort of leaks out to the mainstream enough, right, that it becomes something that some people catch wind of. Um, and that's when it starts to, to, to become a problem. All right, uh, 1905, um, a, a, a weird religious kook um, and, and self-described mystic, um, you should look up this guy's picture, actually, uh, na- named Sergei Nilus, wrote a book called <laughs> The Great Within the Small and Antichrist, which I imagine makes more sense in the Russian, um, because I've, I don't know how to make sense of that term. Wow, that's some beard. <laughs> yeah. Jesse, you seeing this guy? Is that Dumbledore? It is. It's like it's like Russian. <laughs> it's like scary Russian Walt Whitman. It's like uh, it's like if Walt Whitman and, and Rasputin had a kid. Yeah. So so this freaking weirdo, right? Like who's <laughs> this like magician? Um, actually, very similar in a lot of ways to to Rasputin. Kind of part of that same sort of self-described priest thing, right? That Rasputin did. Is he kind of, kind of carrying on like the Tolstoy look too a little bit? Yeah, right? yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a bit of that. Um, so, you know, he's this like, he's this weirdo, you know, sort of Russian version of the Q shaman uh, who, <laughs> who, who, writes, who writes this stupid book. Um, and the... You know, the book itself is like the left behind of like, you know, early 20th century Russia, right? It's like this like fever dream, you know, fanfic about the Jews and Christianity and blah, blah, blah. Uh, anyway, so he just takes <laughs> he just takes the protocols of the elders of Zion and shoves it in as the last chapter of his book. Um, 
So he like writes this book and he's like, ah, I need one more chapter. I'll just I'll just steal another book and shove it in there. Um so he a book that's already been stolen like three times over, right? right? Like, super plagiarized it's like to a, begin with. It's like Yeah, so at this point, like it has no credibility and he and he and he puts it in this book. Um but because the book is sort of this weird, again, sort of voodoo pseudo-spiritual, you know, wellness culture nonsense. What is this, like, Dianetics of the time? Like, it's giving me weird cult vibes. Kind of, yeah. It's sort of culty. Uh, you, you know, like, I know that we, and we'll talk about Rasputin in the next episode, too, but, you know, I, I, I know that, you know, Jess knows some things about Rasputin. Um, I don't know, Jess, how would you describe Rasputin? I don't know. I feel like I feel like Mike kind of hits a little bit of it. You know, you think about cults, it's about getting people to believe what you're saying to them. Right. Even right. though it's not accurate. Like he clearly <laughs> was not a magical healer who could just place his hands on someone and then they were magically fine. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that's, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So one of the things about Rasputin, um, which again, we'll, we'll talk about it more next next time, but one of the things about him is that there's so much of the sort of mystique about him that that is um, projection, like it's external, right? It, it It's not really, like who he claimed to be and what he claimed to do uh, was very different from the sort of outside observers and the propagandists um, who, who are trying to kind of discredit him. So it's complicated. And, and, and Nihilus is, is kind of like that, right? So, so it's the, the, his fans are almost like making him even more of a kind of a weird mystic than even maybe he claimed to be. Um, but he's this like prophet of anti-Semitism. Um, and because he shoved it in this book, it gave, um, first of all, it, it sort of gave a new dimension to the protocols. Um, it moved them away from this sort of clearly almost laughable anti-Semitic satire, right, into this weird kind of prophetic mystic thing that that appealed to a whole different kind of audience. And this is where I think it gets really interesting for sort of, if we want to look at parallels to today, Right, like one of the things I talked about with 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 QAnon is that it has a little bit for everybody, and what seems to happen to the protocols is that, like, on the one hand, people can be like, "Yeah, obviously it's fake," but also at the same time, be like, "But it kind of, it's kind like maybe it's true, like it's kind of true, right?" Like, uh, or or like, you know, you see these sort of weird. Um, mystical types and there's they're 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 sort of latching onto that part of it as opposed to the political screed part of it right um and you know we all now know who the q shaman is and i think that's again a good sort of parallel right like you look at the q shaman and he's not the 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 sort of maga hat wearing right gun toting typical stereotype of like the trump fan um He's coming at it from this like, you know, quantum vibe side of it, and and um, it's not political, right? And so and so, what 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 Nihilus does is 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 makes it makes the protocols non political, and so it, it's it, it's able to sort of infiltrate this other um, area of 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 society. 
that's interesting too because i never understood why he called himself the shaman like that seemed incredibly disrespectful to native americans i was like maybe that's why he's doing it because he's just a racist pos there's nothing but the idea that it sort of goes beyond politics into all these different walks of life avenues of interest you know they make it fit they could make it fit into um, I don't know, astrology or something like that, you know? Uh, you read the stars and you can just tell that the protocols are right. Mm. You know, you convince them of that. It's it's sort of prying on what's already there, but also you have to look for that, I suppose, as well, and know how to bring that out of somebody. So it's must be, you know, it strikes a nerve. I guess it must have hit, hit some people right, unfortunately. Yeah, and like Jake Angeli, um, the Q shaman, uh, like he might be crazy, but he, um, or he might be, it might be sort of performance art. It's really hard to tell, but he does, um, at least on on the surface, he he does um, believe he is a a shaman, right? And there's a ton of co opting going on there. There's a ton of theater going on there, but like, you know, the 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 tattoos that he has that have these like weird Norse connotations to them and you know, the way that he talks about like shamanism and um and and quantum vibrations and all this sort of shit like no it's not it's not a joke like this really is to him what he thinks is like his his angle into the into the QAnon sphere um and also like something that's going to be part of this story as it as we as we go along in the next few months um that it seems like the russians figured out is there's there's a really um there's a great way of sort of uh, uniting somehow a faction of the far political right and the kind of um, spiritual medicine, alternative medicine, sort of wellness community um, that, that nobody really seemed to be able to figure out until the Russians started doing it all the time. The example that I would point to right now is the anti-vaxxer movement, Ugh. right? And okay. <laughs> I like that response, Jess. Um, yeah, it's because it's um, you know it's built on the idea of a distrust in um, in institutions, and also appeals to like the hippie. I want my child to be natural, like you know, all that, like that bullshit yeah. that that is incredibly effective, right? And, and so and so you look at like a mm. lot of a lot of the uh, the Q and honors who are not typically right wing, but 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 very kind of you know, guru yoga types, right? Like and, new age. Like I never yeah. occurred to me that there's like these new age right wingers out there and this is what they're into. Right. This is like how they get tuned to the cosmic universe and shit. And it's like, bro, okay. <laughs> yeah. Never occurred to me. Yeah. All right. So here's what happens next. Um, now it was pretty clear once um, the protocols started moving into the kind of mainstream um, view, uh, you know, a lot of people who weren't crazy or weren't already sort of drinking the Kool-Aid were very dubious of their authenticity, like immediately, right? So, um, you know, some people actually were familiar with, um, with, with Jolie's work, for instance, and they were like, this is clearly just verbatim like you just change the word word you know uh uh dictator with jew <laughs> like it's you know it's obvious what you're doing here and in fact uh by 1920 a a, a jewish british journalist named lucian wolf um 
you know, put together a very convincing argument that like they were obviously fake. And and then sort of building on that, um, a journalist for the London Times named Philip Graves in 1921 wrote a really, really famous expose of being like, I am going to show you like why the protocols are very clearly right, <laughs> copied from um, the following texts and like did a whole bunch of side by side stuff. And it was like, it was pretty, um, it was pretty blockbuster. And, and the weird thing is like, this is the it was it was sort of Graves' piece was the was the real entry onto the stage of of sort of um, you know the global awareness of the existence of the protocols. So he writes this thing, and it's like here's this here's this canard, and I'm going to show you exactly how it was created. And people are like, oh, I hadn't even heard of that, right? And so he <laughs> it's it's almost like he kind of inadvertently like made them, uh, um, you know aware to, to people who maybe hadn't even been aware oh. of them before. Oh, um, no. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's like compounds the problem because he's not solely responsible for that, but, but it is the sort of thing where like, again, you know, it's something we've talked about. You can't show people who believe this sort of thing, um, counterfactual evidence and, and expect it to be uh, end of story, right? Like, well, Donald Trump is not president. Right? Like Mike Pence was not hanged outside. Yeah. The, you know, so so like clearly it's all bullshit, right? Q people are like, no, no, March fourth. So you know, it's 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 a very sort of similar sort of thing to that, right? Um, a lot of people were like, oh yeah, obviously it's bullshit. They would be inclined to think it was bullshit anyways. Uh, it's possible that Graves' piece may have done some harm as well as some good, but but the reality is is that both um, Wolf and, and Graves were were. Uh, about three years too late, uh, because it was the inter inter interstitial three years where where things got 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 ugly. So, 1917, the Bolsheviks overthrow the Romanov dynasty and begin the the great and good Soviet Union um, in the October Revolution. So, you know, three years prior to um, the the sort of ex- exposing of the protocols as a fraud, they're no longer relevant. Uh, the Bolsheviks have won, and um, the whole purpose of this thing was to undermine the very, you know, the sort of leftist political uprising that the Bolsheviks represented. And so they don't have any political value anymore. They are they are literally useless um, at, at this point. So what happens is that somehow in the year 1917, uh, the Protocols left Russia. Um, and went where everybody goes when they flee for a better life, America. Um, and so <laughs> having proved useless now in Russia, the protocols needed a new home, uh, and new eyes and new believers, and they would find one in automobile magnate Henry Ford. Henry Ford. Yeah. I, now, I really wanted to like dramatize that with like a, giving his full name, like, you know, Henry Horatio magnanimous Ford <laughs> but like dude's literal fucking name was henry ford like that's it no middle name nothing just wow. henry ford like america what a stump it's so <laughs> it's in some ways the most american thing about henry ford is that he just like nope you need two names and they're going to be boring and they're going to be uh three total syllables um so yeah, you can't even like dramatically read Henry Ford's name, uh, which is unfortunate because he was a monster. 
Nazi sympathizer Henry Ford was born in July 30th, 1863 in Springwells Township in Michigan, United States of America. And in addition to all of this and being the father of the Ford Focus, he's remembered <laughs> by generous historians as an anti-war pacifist. Yeah. So if you read about Henry Ford um, in terms of his relationship to the world wars, right, you hear pacifist in Ford versus Ferrari, which is a rather good movie. Otherwise, he his son is portrayed as telling a story that his father used all the plants to make tanks and armaments, and that how he helped them fight the Nazis to win World War II. Yeah, I was like, I think we need to fact check that. Yeah, so that's true. What he doesn't tell you is that he also made armaments for the Germans. Oh wow, he was a real <laughs> uh, Schindler, huh? Yeah. Just you know, trying to. Go play it down the center, right? Make sure you're not you're not picking sides. Uh, you want to be like Bruce Springsteen and li- be right in the middle. <laughs> let's meet there one <laughs> let's, day. <laughs> let's meet in the middle. That's Henry Ford. He's all about being in the middle. Now, now you guys, all right. So, if you're a pacifist in early 20th century America, um, what does that actually mean? I mean, this is America. There's no such thing as pacifism. At this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, so sure, right? And and I think that's what you just said there, Jess, is like really key because it's honestly, if you're an American and you're a pacifist, it's deeply suspect, right? Like, especially if you are a wealthy automobile magnate. And in fact, pacifism itself was a cover uh in in um early 20th century America for being fine with the status quo and thus, you know let the Nazis do what they're going to do because I'm fine. I'm a rich white guy. So, so, you know, we, we credit Ford for being a pacifist, but you got to look at Ford's um, own, own writing and his own um, agenda to really understand what that actually means. So for instance, like Ford was famously in favor of high wages. He paid his employees really, really well. Right. He believed that, um, you know, low skill, labor should be entitled to like time off and and uh, good working conditions and all that sort of thing. But he also believed that he should be making that decision, not the government. Right. So like he he, he was vehemently opposed to um, minimum wage increases, which is very much like the sort of thing a fascist does. Right. Where it's like, I want what's best for you, but I have to give it to you. You I can't you can't be trusted. Right. He was super anti-union. You can't be trusted to fight for your own well-being. It has to be me making that decision. And I will do, I will make your life better, but you don't get to have a say in that, right? And this is Henry Ford's real character coming through, right? That That's like, this is why the, the pacifism thing is bullshit. He, he was an isolationist and isolationists often sort of, um, put themselves in the in the cloaking right of of pacifism in order to um, to kind of pass themselves off as being maybe more noble than they actually are. You know, the, the, the most famous isolationist group of the early 20th century was the America First Party, and America First was a effectively pro-Nazi, anti-interventionist uh, party. Um, it was a pro-fascist party. It did. It said, like, we shouldn't attack Nazi Germany. Um, we should let Hitler do what he wants because 
we should care about America and America's, you know, the, the, the well-being of Americans. Let's, let's not get ourselves embroiled in any more wars. But it had a very clear and obvious um, anti-Semitic and pro-fascist underpinning, which, yes, is one of the reasons why Donald Trump chose it as one of his um, campaign slogans. But yeah, that, that term has some, has some really gross connotations. Okay, so Ford's this raging anti-Semite. He loves the Nazis. Uh, big fan of Hitler. Um, and in fact, he was maybe the world's biggest fan of the protocols, except for one Adolf Hitler. So, so Hitler and Ford have this like ridiculous mutual admiration society. Uh, Hitler talks about Henry Ford by name in Mein Kampf um, a couple times. So, so Ford, uh, getting back to the whole, if you have a political ideology you want to spread, buy a newspaper. Uh, Ford bought uh, the Dearborn Independent newspaper uh, and used it as a means of sort of ghostwriting his anti-Semitic and and racist conspiracy theories, uh, which he sort of um, outsourced to a guy named William J. Cameron, who was a a journalist that Ford hired to be his sort of pen um, in in the Independent um, and and to, to pen all of these uh, sort of ridiculous warnings against the rise of the uh, Jewish cabal that's going to take over the, the the Western world. So here's the story of how, in the years between 1917 and 1920-ish, uh, the, the protocols wind up in Ford's possession. So in 1917, uh, a, a unnamed army officer brought the protocols to the U.S. Um, the the definite identity of this person is still a mystery uh, and and probably will never be conclusively solved. Um, but one good guess as to who it is, uh, is a guy named Boris Bressol, a Russian writer and lawyer, uh, who served as a lieutenant in the white Russian army and found himself in the U S in 1916 and was forced to stay there following the Bolshevik overthrow. So he's in, he's in Russia. He's a white Russian. He is a pro czarist. Bressel fits into this chain of events because he was identified by, uh, Natalie de Bolgeri as the person who gave her a copy of the antichrist book, the, the, the nihilist book. So, so he's this guy, he's there, he's got a copy of it. He gives it to Natalie de Beaujeri, uh, who is also a really, really interesting person. She's a Swiss-born uh, intellectual with deep ties to Tsarist Russia, as well as Russian revolutionaries, interestingly. So she spent time in and out of Russia growing up, eventually marrying a, an American journalist uh, named Albert Sonicson, uh, and eventually settled in Paris following their divorce in 1919. But what's important here is that she also worked as an assistant uh, in New York, uh, to Harris Houghton, uh, who was a U.S. military intelligence officer, who also happened to be a zealous, paranoid uh, anti-Semite. Uh, think like Mike Flynn, right? That's basically who he is. W- when Debogery uh, presented the the, uh, the Nihilist text, the Antichrist text, to Houghton, uh, he, being a zealous and paranoid anti-Semite, assumed it was authentic and paid her to translate it into English because she was fluent in both English and Russian, because she worked as sort of a... Um, interpreter for 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 houghton so (laughs) she's like hey check out this book i got and he's like oh my god the jews are planning to take over the world you know he's kind of dumb and he hasn't heard about it they the 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 times piece hasn't been published um and he's like oh this (laughs) this confirms everything i believe about jews let's make an english copy of it and she's like i'm on it um so so debaugerie is the first to translate it into into English. So by 1917, an English version of that last chapter of the of the um, the Nihilist book, which is just the protocols, is now circulating within the United States. Um, and and that's sort of all we know up until 
a couple of years later when the protocols were handed to Henry Ford by someone named Paquita de Shishmaref, who is better known, thankfully, as L. Fry. Um, that's the letter L with a dot and the last name F-R-Y. I, I could do a whole episode on L. Fry. Yeah, she sucked. <laughs> but man, what a story. There's too much to, to get into a great deal of detail here, but I'll, I'll give you the basics. Uh, she was born in Paris in 1882 uh, and spent much of her life in Russia, where in 1906 she married Colonel Fyodor Shishmarev, a czarist noble who, like so many others, was murdered by Bolsheviks in the revolution. Fry fled with her sons to America and settled in San Francisco, where she used her wealth to back American fascism and was generally an unimaginable piece of shit. It was her involvement in fascist circles that led her to Ford, not surprisingly, and she gifted him a copy of the now-circulating English-language version of the Protocols. Fry's claim was that it was an authentic text outlining the secret agenda of progressive Zionist Asher Ginsburg, otherwise known as Ahad Ha'am, uh, which appears to be taken at face value by Ford, who again was a racist moron. It's worth mentioning here, too, that Fry would go on to write a book called Waters Flowing Eastward, in which she made up an insane bullshit origin story for the Protocols and tied the Jewish cabal at their center to the Freemasons, thus expanding the scope uh, and nature. <laughs> <laughs> of the New World Order conspiracy uh, that would also include a completely reimagined and purely fictional Illuminati. So this, guys, is where we start to get into American conspiracy theory language, right? Freemasons and Illuminati. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, like in a, in a future episode, we're going to see more about how that transition happened um, and... and um, you know, how we get from the Jews, right, to the Freemasons and the Illuminati. And we're just talk it's always talking about the same sort of fictional shadow group. It's everyone but us. <laughs> yeah, which which actually, I mean, is interesting because it kind of goes back to like what Brofman was doing, right? Where he was, he was like, well, the Cajals sort of don't exist anymore but really it's the you know it's the it's the alliance in 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 france who are like a cover you know it's the george soros shit it's always the same fucking thing over and over again so you know you're bored with just blaming the jews uh but the freemasons you know who knows what they're up to and they're probably behind some uh plot to, oh. to undermine the fascist revolution in America. Uh, yeah, and let's trace them to the founding fathers easily, and now <laughs> we're all... <laughs> At some point within here, right, uh, Hitler, he gets a hold of the, of, the, of the protocols as well, and, like, he uses them as like one of the basis for for the holocaust um it, part of the the broader sort of nazi um anti-semitic propaganda and and ford uh takes them now that he has them and passes them on to cameron and cameron publishes them in the independent as basically like an op-ed like a look what we found uh see everything that we've told you is true anyway so the the the, the sum collection of the racist bat shittery produced by Ford and Cameron um, was sort of put into a, collected into a book called The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. Oof. <laughs> a real, another page turner. <laughs> Jesus. It's like, you gotta love the brazenness of just like, really? We're not gonna I mean, it stands out on the rack, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it does stand out on the wreck. I mean, it's it's in terms of like the um, truth and advertising. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I should just name it sex. Now that I have your attention, <laughs> the Jews control the world. 
Ford published and distributed about a half a million copies of the International Jew, thus mainstreaming the protocols and implanting them into the cultural imagination. Um, and all this happens before the London Times can produce its expose. So again, the narrative has already taken hold um, within anti-Semitic circles in America, um, and and no amount of um, undoing is is gonna is gonna. Um, happen. Now, Ford did have to ultimately sort of apologize and retract um, his endorsement of the protocols once it became public knowledge that they were bullshit. Oh, he saw that episode of Mythbusters (laughs) finally. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing, right? And so it's really interesting what he had to say about it, which again, it's something you kind of hear a lot today. Um, Especially again, when you look at the numbers, like if you look at polling about um, the number of Republicans who uh, believe in the QAnon conspiracy, if you, if you ask them, do you believe in every element of it? Lizard people, um, you know, the uh, drinking children's blood, like all of this stuff. Um, Most of them will say no, but if you ask it, in the in the do you believe all or part of the QAnon conspiracy, um, a majority of registered Republicans say yes. Um, and and why that's so interesting is because what Ford said in his sort of apology for you know uh, circulating this conspiracy theory was like, but it's true in spirit. <laughs> He's like, Jesus, <laughs> oh my god, oh my god. So he basically was like. Uh, yeah, it's a forgery. It's it's obviously an exaggeration, but the underlying basis that there is a Jewish cabal that is intent on overthrowing the world, that part's true. It's just that I got the specifics wrong, and I'm and I'm sorry, not sorry about that. Wow, that's like oh, you know, yeah, Zenu, whatever, that kind of stuff. There's not really a space alien that's trapping my thetan levels, but everything else, you know, I buy that. It helped me live my life. It's like, come on, dude. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> by the middle of the 20th century, um, anti-Semitism was not popular in America, uh, but um, anti-communism was. And again, they've always been the same thing, right? So um, it was not cool to like not be cool with the Jews for a while, but then you had... Um, you know, McCarthy and you had the Red Scare and it's just, it's always been there. So, so the protocols have always, have never like been exhumed from, um, from the American psyche. And they came back in a big way in 1991, uh, thanks to, oh, again, someone who we will talk a lot more about in a later episode, Bill Cooper. So 1991 is like right before, like right at the time the X-Files starts. And, and Bill Cooper is the defining figure in the kind of 1990s version of conspiracy theory infrastructure. Um, he published a book called Behold a Pale Horse, which is hmm. one of the most influential texts uh, in, in recent American history that nobody really, um, outside of the people who've read it, really understand how influential it is. So many of the ideas that get tied together, like the Area 51 stuff and the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Illuminati um, comes, from, comes from Cooper. And um, he was especially popular with um, urban Black readers, which is really interesting because a lot of the um, conspiracy theories that show up in like 90s rap music um, comes directly from Bill Cooper. So yeah, he's I mean, he's a giant piece of shit. He 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 died uh in the early 2000s. But he 
resurrected the protocols in a big way. And he is the first to say, oh, whenever it says Jew, it means Illuminati. Um, so, so we have Fry, who's the person who's like, it's actually the Masons. And then we have Bill Cooper in 1991, who's like, yeah, but it's not really the Jews. The Jews is a cover. The, protocol, the, the elders, elders of Zion themselves was a, was a cover for the Illuminati. And he equated the elders of Zion with the, um, getting back to something that all three of us know very well, the, the Priory of Sion um, and the, the, the deep Templar slash <laughs> Illuminati Priory of Zion, mm. Protocols of Zion thing into like one giant milkshake. Um, and, and so that's how we get that text to become the Illuminati um, is, is through Bill Cooper. And then in 1994, uh, David Icke, who is someone who is a huge pain in the ass, even to this day, he's still around. He wrote something called Robots Rebellion, and, and he's the first to give us the lizard people. So, the, you know, that's become a huge part of sort of the, <laughs> the, 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 the one of the big pillars of Q. And he also reaffirms Cooper's uh, assertion that the protocols are legitimate. It's just that they're not necessarily um, the Jews. It's a uh, ancient Illuminati conspiracy and so like if you ever listen to alex jones for instance like one of the things that he says is that this has been going on for hundreds of years right so it's 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 this idea that um you know it goes back to like the spear of destiny and like the the templars and all that sort of thing um and, and so the the protocols themselves were like retconned into a much older and deeper conspiracy narrative um, that that is part of that sort of soup of of conspiracy theories that we have today. So two years after the publication of the International Jew, uh, Joseph Stalin took control of Soviet Russia, and in the intervening years, he clearly learned something from the evolution of the protocols from anti-Bolshevik prank to tool for international disruption. And it's a lesson that he would not let go to waste. Um, and, and this is where the genesis of a lot of Stalin's disinformation ideas begin. And that's the story of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Epic. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. I have so it many is... tabs open right now. I do too. I know. There's like three books I want I want to just like read. Did you just order the International Jew from Amazon? No, 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 no. But I'm just looking up Behold the Pale Horse. I, I've got, you know, cliff notes and things like that going, but I currently have open Occult Theocracy by Lady Queenborough Edith Starr Miller, who researched this book for ten years with L. Fry. Lots of Illuminati stuff in here. It's wild how Cooper died uh, in a shootout with deputies. <laughs> like spoilers. We'll talk about that later. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't end this whole story of disinformation and the Russian connection without without Cooper. Um, Cooper's a, a huge player uh, in, in sort of how we got to where we are today. There's like, there's a lot of suspicion that Chris Carter based Deep Throat on, on uh, at least in part, oh. on, on Bill Cooper. And also sort of like the whole lone gunman thing is like, yeah, yeah it, it's weird because like, because Carter was totally into this shit, but in a way that like a lot of us were in the 90s which is as kind of um 
you know, entertainment because everything was going so well in the world. Like it seemed, it seemed so harmless. It did seem harmless. Yeah, yeah you did. know, like it, it didn't, it didn't run that deep. Even on the X Files, it all led to aliens, but it was never code for Jew or anything. You know, <laughs> like I can't even remember all that much when religion was a part of. So it, it always sort of be more science based and whatever but like right. yeah it is kind of remarkable how steeped into pop culture this is and people may not even be aware of how or why right well now i'm looking at um <laughs> i'm looking at bill cooper and his thoughts on the kennedy assassination <laughs> so much cool. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking okay what do i have to do at work tomorrow that i really need to do and can i just sit here and read all the stuff that i have open uh i think i've given you guys a lot of like breadcrumbs to follow for future episodes uh so you'll probably be even more you know well-versed by the time we get to talking about bill cooper later on but we are going to reconvene in a few weeks, and we will be taking a look at the Anastasia conspiracy theory and what that has to do with the Bolsheviks. I'm so excited. <laughs> that is a uh, never-ending well of, of fun. Um, I might have to watch and... a movie or two in prep for that episode. <laughs> yeah, everything you need to know is in the animated movie starring uh, Meg Ryan and John Cusack. Uh, Wait, yeah. what? Yeah. It's... it's... <laughs> It's it it is a clear historical fact Absolutely. based. Did she have a singing frog companion or something? Is it one of those? <laughs> yeah, I highly. Yeah, it's it's all true. Highly. Is there recommend. not a talking bat in there or something? There That's she, what it there is. There sure is. Right. All right. That's it for this episode. Uh, guys, want to plug anything? Uh, sure. Um, Catch my show, my new show, The Monsters That Made Us, the final Friday of every month where me and my co-host Dan Cologne, we talk about the Universal Monster movies. We're going back to the beginning. We're going to watch all those, talk about them, and then we're going to take it from there. I'd like to watch monster movies for the rest of my life and record podcasts <laughs> about them and be terrific. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, everything else I'm on, you could find at cageglobe.me, facebook.com slash cageglobe and at Cage Club Pod on Twitter and Instagram. I am on several Cage Club Podcast Network shows um, all over the place. I highly recommend you go and listen to anything on that network because they're the best. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at JRK. Um, I also have a little website called Unicorn Musings, unicorn-musings, uh, where I talk about... Uh, recommend movies that I've watched or books that I've read. Um, and then usually you can find me sitting here in my home office uh, looking up conspiracy theories. Please don't find me, though. <laughs> and if, and if, if you happen to see a review of Behold the Pale Horse on her website, uh, pure coincidence. <laughs> or the International Jew. <laughs> Two and a half stars. Uh, Binding was good. That's about it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, we'll be back soon.